We're glad to know that you've opened up your heart-shaped box to listen to us. I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And this week we will be discussing Nirvana's third and final album, In Utero, um, released in 1993, so now 30 years ago. Um, the Battle uh, of the 93. Yes, uh, against the other um, very famous grunge band Pearl Jam we did versus last week, which is an interesting contrast to this, because uh, Pearl Jam was definitely going for a more classic rock sound as opposed to Nirvana, who wanted to go more punk, <laughs> is really yeah more where we're going here. So um, if you haven't already, we did do an episode on Nevermind. So if you want to check that out, please do. We get into all of that. But anyway, album, huge success, changed music as we knew it in 1992. So anticipations were high, but Kurt Cobain being the contradictory man that he is, he said that he didn't like how polished Nevermind was. His bandmates agreed. They just felt it was just not raw enough. Um, Kurt even said it sounded like a Motley Crue record, which I totally disagree with. He was definitely exaggerating to make a point. It was not that polished. It's definitely still different, but that that was Kurt Cobain for you. So they wanted to make this more raw record, uh, 1993, in utero, and uh, they did not use much vig of the previous album. Again, he produced Nevermind, which was a risk after its success, but they they wanted to go back to basics here. And so they hired this guy, Steve Albini. Um, He's worked with people up to this point, most known for working with the Pixies. Um, Not the only folks he's worked with, though. But that was a, a huge influence on Nirvana, were the Pixies. So yeah, Kurt was definitely Kurt was all about getting this guy for this album. This Reading about this guy, he sounded like a real sh- shite head. <laughs> he does that. I mean, he was like, oh, yeah, I'd work with them because they're like the little bands that I work with and their labels up their ass. Like, OK, this is the guy you want, Kurt. Yeah, but <laughs> it, it seems like Kurt Cobain, he liked a lot of things more in, pr- in um idea than in execution. I think it's safe to say. Well, um, yeah, be- because Albin was known as an engineer of sorts. Like he had 30 mics around Grohl during this, you know, in my opinion, I would have to think that's what Kurt Cobain was after is the engineering of the sound from this guy rather than the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah. But it was insistent that they wanted him and they recorded all of these songs in February of 1993. And uh, the month after they had two big live gigs in Brazil, one of which was a total disaster and another of which was a triumph. So I think that kind of summed up where the band was at this point in time. A lot of ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys, because obviously they were somewhat feeling creative. They were writing enough new material for an album. But, well, Kurt Cobain was, at this point, dependent on heroin, and uh, that does not make you as productive as you need to be, to put it lightly. Um, Yeah, I I mean, and he had just became a father, too. That, too. Yeah, which sucks, talking about the heroin and that at the same time, but it was 93, you know? They wanted an album out, not Nirvana, but... The record label wanted an album out in 92. Kurt had a baby and and that didn't happen. And they put Insecticide out, which we ate up back then. 
you know, but it was really cutting room floor stuff stuffed onto stuff we hadn't heard, you know, and we still ate it up. Yeah, people were going to take what they could get, but this was the proper follow-up that everybody was waiting for. Yeah. And um, so album was recorded and it was a mix of new and old material, actually. Quite a few songs on this album go back to the early 90s, even before Nevermind, which uh, I find that pretty interesting. It's like this band's on their third album and they're already going back into the vault a bit. Um, yeah, I just don't know if that's the best sign for a band's long term um, stability or longevity, I guess you could say we're already digging back. I don't think, again, in my opinion, but I don't think they were going back there as as much so for creativity as going back there to grab songs that they knew was that they knew weren't going to be allowed on Nevermind and didn't fit the sound. Because, I mean, in all honesty this was almost like a threat album. <laughs> I remember it. Like, they were like, we're going to bring you some stuff that you're not even going to be able to listen to. We're going to, we're going to bring you this raw, raw old school Nirvana uh, on the, on the next album we do is, is I'm paraphrasing a lot there, but that was what Kurt was saying back then, you know? Yeah, that was it. And, um, but album is recorded and, uh, with these Albini mixes, and uh, well, it wasn't quite what they expected. Uh, they they wanted something a bit more polished, actually. So the album went to Bob Ludwig for mastering, and then a few of the songs were remixed by Scott Litt, best known at this point for producing REM albums, to make them a bit more accessible to the general public. And naturally, those songs ended up being the ones released to radio. Which is crazy because Albini ended up calling Nirvana poor man. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he was like a, a poor man's REM with a fuzz box uh, is almost the actual quote. But the, he said that about them. Uh, so it's pretty crazy that, you know, somebody that had worked with REM came in and scooped up. Yeah. And, one of the people. You know? Right. Yeah. And. Steve Albini, actually, when he worked with the band, he had pretty positive recollections of them in the studio. He didn't really have anything bad to say. It was how they handled the aftermath was why he was not happy. Let's put that into context. And yeah. I mean, I could see why they did kind of, they didn't fully know what they were getting into, admittedly, the band, but they should have fought more about that. And yeah, this guy kind of got screwed and he wasn't the most experienced producer yeah he was an experienced engineer yeah but not much of a producer but it really speaks to the youngness i feel like of them too because i found myself asking the same question or, or saying the same thing that you were just saying is like why would you end this and be like okay and then two weeks later be like now nah, we're going back in to remix it of course the guy's gonna well you know, it's etiquette. Of course, the guy's going to say no. He finished the album. You know what I'm saying? Like, instead of doing it in two weeks, instead of, and, and this is me just being critical for, for the sake of this conversation, but instead of doing all of your vocal tracks in six hours or whatever it was, the tiny amount of time, take time, listen. Don't worry about pushing this out in two weeks, you know? If it's three weeks, if it's four weeks, give it more time. And I think that, 
I always wonder, and I couldn't find it. Do you know if those mixes ever made it out in like a best of or a... I a lot of original mixes and alternate takes I know were released on box sets and whatnot later. Okay. From what I'm understanding, I haven't listened to them because I just had to listen to the album as we have it. That's what we're here to discuss. And uh Going into wonder, the other yeah. stuff can be a distraction, I think. I feel you. I just wonder what they sounded like. Um, I just, it's curiosity, you know. Oh, most definitely. Those. Yeah, I would agree. It is a curiosity, and it was to many people, I would imagine. But regardless, the band was eventually ready to go for a September of 1993 release, and uh the album being titled In Utero, naturally, it did have a bit of a provocative front cover and back cover, especially. It, I mean, here's the thing. So the front cover is an anatomy, you know, a see-through anatomy mannequin with, with wings. It was risque, though. Thinking back, I mean, I was a young guy, but still was something that you didn't see on the cover of every album. But the mosaic or the abstract art piece on the back was definitely something to see yeah and uh it, this um was actually so controversial that both walmart and kmart said they were not going to sell the album they actually didn't they sold it in a different form after Kurt Cobain's suicide but before that nope they refused to sell it and that definitely did have an effect on sales because those were two of the largest CD retailers at the time, which makes perfect sense to me. I mean, it was never on the Blue Light special, but did it really, do you think it really killed numbers? Do you think numbers would have been that more astronomical than what they were? Maybe not that much more. I'm not saying the sales would have doubled or anything, but I think there would have been a difference. Certainly. Hot tea take. I think it's shit that they did what they did with, the release of this after his suicide, but that's oh, just I me. agree. That's that's money grabbing bullshit at its at its peak. There, I, well, I'd like, what else? Yeah. But what else do you expect from Walmart? I expect more from Kmart. Oh, okay, fair. <laughs> well, now they're they don't exist anymore. I know. So I know. What I are know. you? But then it, I, it was I all because of this. Yes, I held them to the blue light standard. <laughs> uh yeah, I was about to say, Walmart is not, and principles, Walmart and principles don't really go together. Um, Truth. And they've, they have they have censored music before, other instances, not just here. But anyway, album came, an anticipated album. Um, It debuted at number one, and it sold... 180,000 copies first week, which honestly I was kind of shocked to see. I thought that was kind of low. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I mean, Nevermind was the third best-selling album of 92. They tried not to go crazy promoting this, though. I will give them that. You know, after everybody figured out how everybody figured out how much they thought they were going to like it, um i feel like you know once that hype train started going it went yeah i believe that but on the other hand it's just odd that pearl jam they did even less promotion this band still did a music video for the album pearl jam did none and they sold close to a million first week and maybe 
I'm a bit deluded because we've done a lot of record-breaking first week sales recently on here. But it's just just shocking to me for this band that supposedly shifted the culture so much, which they did. But especially to have such a high-selling album the year before. Yeah. That's gone diamond at this point. I mean, I understand why this wouldn't have sold as much in the long run, but I would have expected a bigger first week total. I think two things. Uh, I think I I said it before that put out insecticide and we ate it up. You know, we were like, okay, give us whatever Nirvana you can. But also that could have aided in it not selling as much because, you know, everybody had their fill at that point. More so from what I remember, maybe more so because I was a younger man and this was a super taboo album. That's where I'm getting it. This album was taboo, you know, at release, it was taboo. Um, So it was from a younger standpoint, it was tough to get your hands on. Yeah, that that's a fair point. Like as awesome as this album was. As far as like singles and hits and stuff like that back then and radio play. Thinking about it, I didn't see it in every CD case. I mean, we were seventh, eighth grade right then, you know, so that was it was a tougher time to you know put this one in the old CD case. Uh, and you probably especially. only had so many at that point in time, too. Yeah, yeah most definitely. Well, I mean, yeah. We had a bunch. I, I feel like everybody had their big CD case, but still, this was one that not everybody had. This is just an album that everybody didn't have. Yeah, unlike Versus, which you thought everybody had. Oh, most definitely. That that goat llama, whatever the thing was on the front yeah. of that cover, that was in every CD case. I don't care who you were. You had that album. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So okay, not everybody had it, but it still did pretty well. It sold over 15 million copies worldwide, five million in the US. So half of Nevermind, which again, it's kind of like bad following thriller. Still a huge success, uh, even if it wasn't quite as much as before. So you can't call this a flop by any means. No. And uh, but Less than a year after the album was released, of course, as we know, Kurt Cobain died in April of 1994. And that certainly, I think, helped people. I think it made people more interested in the album because they wanted to decipher the songs and see where there's signs of this, of why did he do it. It was definitely part of the intrigue for folks after he died. Also, not to go too far into my opinion on the album, but in a main in a mass populist opinion i felt like a lot of these songs were more approachable to your regular listener than never mind really Um, melodically too melodically too i again i we won't i won't go into track by track but there's some tracks that were accepted widely across all walks of life back then you know like all all areas i meant some but i don't think all of them do was more my point like oh no not all not all not all but there were those tracks that people that weren't listening to nevermind or probably would have never could listen to those songs on the radio and be like who's that and you'd be like nirvana and they'd be like oh real (laughs) you know yeah i guess it's not all as heavy as nevermind i guess you could say most definitely that 
That's a fair point, I think. But album was also obviously critically well-regarded, and a good amount of people say it's Nirvana's best album, even if it wasn't their biggest. And, uh, but I guess we just kind of have to, let's figure that out for ourselves, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> um, man. In case you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it. Leave us a nice rating and review. Much appreciated. And also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Turntables and Tea Podcast and on X, formerly Twitter, at Turntables Tea. You'll get updates on our latest episodes and other goodies related to what we're doing here. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With that, I'm ready to dive on into this bad boy. So, um, yeah, in utero, here we go. Um, the album begins with Serve the Servants. Uh, what the, the only, I think this was the only song not demoed before the album, actually, I read. Really? Yes. And, uh... <laughs> We we kind of start off with this rocker with some self-deprecating lyrics. It's definitely a reaction to fame, which Kurt Cobain did experience overnight. Um, yeah, this there were thoughts to put something else to open it, but I think this is a good opener. I think it shows that we are in for a new sound a bit, but it's not so inaccessible that a Nevermind fan will be turned off of it. I think the melody of it still shines through, even if it does have more of a raw sound, because this is not one of the remixed songs. Um, so, yeah, I think this is a good opener. Yeah, this... Talk about accessible to people that were listening to Nevermind, like a new sound, but not inaccessible, like you said. It also in the same breath jumped the gap for the hardcore listeners and really gave a sense of an early Nirvana and all the way back to lithium. Um, being one of the unedited, you, I can see what I would think Kurt was looking for or Nirvana as a band was looking for in the way of this raw room sound uh, that they wanted and were looking for um you know, going into recording this. I think this is a perfect example of that. Um, it's polished and it's it's borderline poppy, but I feel like it really becomes a perfect picture of Nirvana and their sound. I I have never until this week going through it like constantly, uh I can't help but hear learn to fly's origins inside of this. 
Um, it's super weird, but it, check it out. <laughs> they, they, and maybe just in my crazy brain, they line up, but I, I can see something here. Then I started to link like serve the servants and then Grohl's leaving and it's learned to fly. And that's all conspiracy, but there's something there inside of the sound. Um, the opening line here is, I, I talked about it at the end of our, our podcast last week, but we're getting a different Nirvana here than, than we did in Nevermind. And we're going to get a little bit different Kurt Cobain here as well. We already talked about him becoming a father and this opening line of teenage angst has paid off well. Now I'm bored and old is like legitimately Kurt in a nutshell right here on the first line of the album. So I always thought that was super cool too. Um, I'm with you on the opener though. I like it as an opener. I can see this. I'll, I'll spoiler alert. I can see this in two other places on the album. Um, and hopefully we'll talk about that. Hopefully I won't forget about that. And we'll talk about that as we go through. But I definitely think this is a neat way to open an album that everybody or a lot of people thought was just going to kick them in the butt. And there's that heaviness to it. But there is approachability and it works out well here. Yes, I agree. With that being said, we're on to the next song, which is Scentless Apprentice, uh, the only song out of these 12 that has all band members credited as writers on it, um, much like Smells Like Teen Spirit. So, but this does not sound like Smells Like Teen Spirit in any way, let's be very clear. But uh, the guitar riff specifically was written by Dave Grohl. So his songwriting just developing, we're hearing it here, which is definitely neat to see, I think. Um, it was inspired by a book called Perfume, written by Patrick Suskind. Uh, not a book I'd ever heard of before. I um, did research for this, but I always think it's cool to hear that a song was inspired by a book. I always yeah. like to hear that. And it's not the only song here that was, so... But, um, anyway. Uh, this one... Okay. It, it, it sounds fine in every way, except for the screaming on the chorus. Uh, I mean, I know... Kurt, I expect Kurt Cobain to be screaming. I heard it. We heard it on their biggest hit. But this in particular, I'm sure it's intentional... But he sounds like a caged monkey. I feel like it's like I'm thinking to myself, is this what passing a kidney stone sounds like? It was. And it just it is. It, it's not just one part of the song. It does. It's the whole chorus. And it is significant. It kind of really hurts the song a lot for me. Yeah. So. Uh, raw and scary is is some of the notes on this as far as that screaming sound. Um Hot tea take, it's not the worst screaming he does on this album either. It, it might be some of the better screaming he does on this album. Um, and it's still really raw and, and, and scary sounding. Um, I love everybody in the same jam on this as far as creative goes. Um, we get our normal too cool for school Kurt Cobain saying like, you know, Grohl, Grohl wrote this rift and it was real like, cookie cutter and i didn't even want to jam on it and then this song just took off and we all really found it and and enjoyed it i do love both of the guitar parts in this um the ascending and descending that are written um 
by by Grohl and and Cobain. I really enjoy that. I love that this is really it's almost a synopsis uh, of this whole entire book, and it's such a cool story in its own right that I am a hundred percent with you when it is marred by this chorus. Um, I really think the the song is is hurt like you said by this course it, it takes me away and it's a cool just reading the lyrics it is cool um but other than than that screaming it's uh it's tough to get through uh, you know with it in there yeah definitely i have to say definitely for me the weakest in the first half of the album yeah and, and it i think the I, I even agree with you back then the crazy part with this for me is it sounds unapproachable from the get-go and not until in my opinion not until a few listens do you even have the start of a liking for it uh or i didn't even back then um this is one that this week has taken legs a little bit more in in listening to it over and over and over again but i i I agree with you it is first half of the album probably the weakest not probably it's the weakest yeah, but admittedly, it has some tough competition in the first half. Um, specifically, one of them being our next song, Heart Shaped Fox, the uh, closest we get to a love song on this album. Um, it's even got some kind of power ballad elements, I feel like, in it, which is not something you would have expected quite from a grunge band. But anyway, it was premiered at the Hollywood Rock Festival in Sao Paulo, which that's saying something. They were ready enough to play it in front of a stadium crowd. I think that's saying something that they knew from the get-go this was a special song. Even Kurt had to admit, I knew this would be a single because there was just something special here. And it is definitely about Courtney Love, who was he was now married to, mother of his daughter. Um, I mean, I... I this relationship, you can tell, has definitely got a lot of toxicity in it. He's saying, I want to eat your cancer. I think that kind of tells you what we're doing here. But I think this is a real complex and sadly codependent relationship when it comes to addiction. And I think that it's a real look at that. But with the love underneath of it despite the toxicity and i have to agree this is definitely a highlight of the album yeah this is one that made its way through the masses this is definitely a giant hit this was all over mtv and the radio um i used to wholeheartedly agree with you on you know that with this codependency and it's there in fact it wasn't until I read Cobain saying that he wrote it about um, children born with cancer and until I read critics break it down. And one critic, I'm paraphrasing again, but said this is the most wild way that we've ever heard someone say, I love you. Um, and it's actually to that line that you were saying, I'll eat your cancer when you turn black as far uh, as a kid with cancer um and a, and a parent singing this which is how cobain said it was written but i want to go to what i always thought it was same as you is this codependent relationship and more so how there's a few times in this album where i find that 
Cobain is telling a cohesive story. And then when we hit the refrain, he's letting us into himself. There's a there's a couple times throughout this album where there's a story and then the refrain is about his personal life. And then it goes back into a story. And I think this is one of them. Um, so it's it's always been a great one. Uh, hot take. This is probably the hottest tea take here. This is one of my least favorite songs for Dave Grohl's drums. Um, they just, for me, always have sounded phoned in. I definitely hold him at a very high cal or a very high bar. So that you know, I I, I should have led with that, but it's definitely not my favorite as far as his drums. Um, I love the end of this song, though. I I do. It, it's that smash your guitar and drum set sound that I always equate with Nirvana. Yeah, I honestly, I have to imagine by this point that Dave Grohl was probably starting to feel a bit like a George Harrison kind of Most being that. in Nirvana. I just honestly, even if Kurt Cobain were still with us today, I just don't see this band having the longevity of Pearl Jam, for one. I just... Her don't see how it could have happened. I think Dave Grohl just had a lot of ideas in him that he needed to get out. And I think that it's not surprising to me to hear that reflected in the music and that a listener can pick up on it because this is definitely a band. It's definitely one man's vision. Yeah, I'm 50-50 with you on that. We get to see one's va one man's vision in the media a lot more because the... <laughs> The, the other three were very soft-spoken individuals as far as being young and in the media. There was an evolution of sound here on this album that I think is a that's a really cool talking point. If Cobain had not died, would they be around as long as Nirvana? It would be a different world, I think, without Foo Fighters and Grohl finding yeah. uh, his run. But there's definitely an evolution here that even back then I was pretty happy to see what they would come up with next after this i mean i meant more in terms of the fact that all the songs are written by one guy oh oh yeah that no. was what oh, i oh oh i'm with you yeah okay, that's I'm what sorry. i mean by that it's Good. one man's vision because when one guy's doing all the songwriting that's true. lyrics and music i i would imagine it's difficult to be in a band where you're just not splitting those duties and there's somebody who wants to write and is writing good songs. We've seen it happen, well, in several bands. Heard, heard. And yeah, no, I that's a, that's a good point. Just have to think it would have happened in this one, because, yeah, I don't imagine there being no Foo Fighters. Yeah, no, that, no. No. It's a, it's a sad world. No. <laughs> it, it just, I just don't see that happening ever. <laughs> but there would have been no hole. Everyone there. Oh, this is, this is a, a rabbit hole we will not go down right now. This is going to no. be a whole episode right there. <laughs> yeah. We're, uh, yeah. I, I don't think we don't have to talk about Courtney too much this episode, I don't think so. <laughs> you know, I was going to say, I'm in a good mood and I don't, I don't, there's no real Courtney stuff here. So I'm good. <laughs> there we have Heart Shaped Box. Not too much talk about Courtney Love. She definitely doesn't figure into our next song, which is. Rape Me. Uh, this is an anti-rape song. Putting that out there in case you haven't heard this song. Uh, but um, a lot heavier than the um, anti-rape song off of Nevermind, which was Polly. That was a very spare acoustic song. And this is 
a heavy rock song. And Nirvana very famously wanted to play this at the 1992 VMAs, but MTV said, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> and he played the opening chords of it before launching into Lithium. <laughs> just to freak everybody out. I remember that. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, that will... But that that it would have been a really cool performance because I like this song better than Lithium actually by quite a lot. I yeah, this one, um it was actually first recorded like before the February 93 sessions, a few months before, like October of 92. And he recorded it first take with his baby girl, Frances Bean, sitting on his lap, and we hear her cries on the song, which just adds another layer to all of it, which is insane. But overall, I think this is a powerful message, first of all. And this song is very blunt in its messaging. You're not going to get have to speculate what it's about, you know. And it might make people uncomfortable. In fact, it probably will make a lot of people uncomfortable. But if you're going to make a message like this, you you have to cross that line. And make the listener uncomfortable. And I think that they did that here. And I do think this song is awesome. But admittedly, part of why I think it's awesome might be that because it was brilliantly used in an episode of Succession. But that. second best musical moment on that show, in my opinion. Genius to use it. Genius to use it. It's a genius song and it's approach and it's approach period. I mean the composition is there. This isn't who kid Kurt we get here in my opinion either. I mean this is a thought provoking song full of meaning an anti rape song titled rape me a, a a screaming screaming taunt uh that is 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 undeniable. I Tori Amos even went on record saying, like, people need to stop trying to act like this isn't, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but act like this isn't a anti-rape song. You know, she said, even the first time I heard it, I was in a sweat, a cold sweat at first when I heard the words because they're very daunting. But in fact, it's it's that genius anti-rape. It's uh, it's a very powerful song. This was part of that whole Walmart Kmart stuff, man. Yeah. And it's it's a very very easily polarizing two word thought there, you know. Um, so to use it and and be able to successfully use it um, in an anti rape setting is is genius. It's genius. This is uh, this is another one though, as risque as it was, as taboo as it was, it was everywhere, man. I mean, it, don't get me wrong, it wasn't on the radio every day, but it was. This was a song everybody was talking about, you know. This is a song everybody was listening to together. Um, this was this was Nirvana, man. This is one that was on that put them right back on the map. Yeah, this was the single after Heart Shaped Box. It was released as a single with the closing track, I have to say. Um, so as I said earlier, Heart Shaped Box was the only song on the album that got a video. And part of that was because Kurt Cobain was actually scared to make another video because he felt the Heart Shaped Box video was so good he couldn't top it. 
Yeah, that was a sick video. Which is insane, but he did have a couple of treatments for a video for Rape Me, and I'm really sad that we didn't get to see that. I think this would have been a great video as well, but in doing research, an article from uh, Jim D. Regattas, who actually did a lot of reporting on the R. Kelly case and really broke that through to everybody, so hats off to him for that. But uh, before... This was before we even many of us even knew who R. Kelly was. Um, he said, like, if this were a single with the video, it would have been a Madonna-sized controversy. It would have. I think that really is one of the biggest reasons that that video was never made, is because, I mean, it's wild that the song made it over without, you know, being a, a controversy that goes the wrong way, but to double down and do a video however you wanted to do it had the propensity to be a nightmare for the label, for MTV, for really everyone other than maybe the artists. It definitely probably would have been ahead of its time seen that way now, but I think yeah. it would have been an important video and I'm sad that we didn't see it. So... Yeah. It definitely would have. But, um, alas, we still have a great song here. Yeah. Classic, in my opinion. So, but we're not done taking on possibly controversial subjects here, but we're going to go back in history for our next song, which is Francis Farmer will have her revenge on Seattle. So... <laughs> Frances Farmer was an actress born and raised in Seattle who had a career in Hollywood and Broadway throughout the 1930s. She wasn't like a Katherine Hepburn or Betty Davis big name, but she was out there. She was doing her thing. However, early 40s, she was having some real mental health problems. She was actually diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And as a result, was institutionalized in the state of Washington for eight years. And um, this is honestly, the fact that this happened to her is much more well-known than any of her acting. Uh, this is really her claim to fame. Uh, people know that this happened to her. And it's very sad that they did because uh, just people with mental illnesses would get institutionalized and not properly treated. And uh, Kurt Cobain read a biography about her called Shadowland, which a lot of it's actually been discredited in the years since its release, uh, interestingly enough. But reading this book, Kurt Cobain saw a lot of himself in Francis Farmer, and I can actually totally see that because i did watch the um montage of heck documentary about cobain on hbo and that is a controversial documentary in its own right not everybody was happy with how it was done in that inner circle but there's no doubt in my mind i really do think he had a severe undiagnosed mental illness of some kind and just didn't have the proper resources to take care of it because it's the only thing that i think can explain some of what went on with him but that's a that's a discussion for a different day back to francis farmer um my favorite thing about this song i think it's a really neat story first of all 
Um, I love that we're going to that historical place. And it's not the first song about her, but it might be the most famous. Um, there's a really powerful refrain of, I miss the comfort in being sad. And I just have to say, for anybody who's... I know I've had my struggles with depression, definitely had some pretty major depressive episodes, and you get so used to being sad in those situations that it feels weird. It's uncomfortable to feel happy. I know I've been there before, like where I just felt wrong and weird feeling happy. It's like, and in that case, I really relate to this line, and I think that it's a really profound thought. And I'm glad that it was expressed in this song. And um, put that in with the interesting inspiration. And I think we have another winner. Yeah, it definitely is a winner. Um, it's more so, not more so. It definitely is a winner, even as a, a composition here. I love the intro to this song. It fits so beautifully, hits even harder sitting right behind Rape Me. Um, just the sliding up and down, it, it really warms up the song and, and, and sets off this beautiful composition. You know, this beautiful kindred spirit stuff right here, uh, as far as Kurt was considered. Um, it, it's just a really cool character piece. This is an an, an evolving, uh, you know, I've, I said it already, I'll say it again, an evolving Cobain. Um, he's getting older and it's it's a neat look into the maturity or, for lack of better words, the evolving maturity of his artistry, I think. Definitely a winner. Yeah, for sure. But... While we have the evolving, as I said earlier, there are some songs that go back to the beginning, or maybe not quite the beginning, but earlier days, and one of them is the next song, which is Dumb. The song actually dates back to 1990, so right after the first album, Bleach, before Nevermind. Um, I think this is another song that deals with the complexities of happiness. I think I'm dumb or maybe just happy, which uh, definitely that kind of classic sarcasm that we would get from this band at this time. Um, it's not a very heavy song, but it doesn't need to be. I think the story is what's important here, and I think it gets that across very well. Um, this one, it wasn't a single, but it did get radio play nonetheless from what I'm seeing, and uh, I can see why. I, I'm glad they uh, resurrected this one to say i think it has a good thing going here yeah i mean kurt would go on to say that he wrote it about people that were just happy in mundane lives you know not social life not anything but just happy doing whatever um and it really living inside of it it also came across as an anthem in my opinion an anthem for that generation of happy just doing nothing sort of you know just copacetic um and it it always it always rang true I, it's wild to read and then hear you know that this was not a single um because this one had this was airplay all over the place this is one of 
I mean, I don't know how many times they got to do it live, but I, I remember seeing shows of them doing this live uh, where people were just screaming it um, as far as singing along with, with the refrain. I always love this one. I always love the fact that there's a cello on this album. Even back in the day, like there's strings on, on this track. There's it, it was just always such a cool piece. Um, and it's almost one of those ones that you'd miss unless you were really listening or, or it caught you, you know. I always love that about this track. This is a cool one. This there's definitely a lot of nostalgia for me on this track. Um, and the funny part is I hadn't listened to it in a while, but I mean, we're pretty much at this, in my opinion, the end of this chunk for me that was super nostalgic. Like from Heart Shaped Box straight down to Dumb is a lot of my listening from a couple of years back then, you know? So I mean, this is a really cool spot in the album for me. Yeah, it's a, it's a really strong sequence of songs, I have to say. Very great four track run. Yeah, but with that being said, can they keep it up for track number seven? Well, that, that's <laughs> up to you to decide. Uh, track number seven is called "Very Ape," uh, a song about um false machismo or toxic masculinity, perhaps is what they'd say now. Um, uh, it was originally titled "Perky New Wave." Uh, uh, I guess because I I guess it has a new wave influence, but I don't really hear it here. Um, yeah, this one it it's not as strong as the previous four songs. It's not even in the same league as them. So that's a knock against it already. Um, but in all honesty, it's more of an interlude than the song. It's less than two minutes long. So I don't think much of it, but I can't get mad of it. I can't get mad about it because it doesn't take up too much of the album. And uh, that's really all I have to say about it. I really don't have much more of a thought other than it's an interlude. Yeah, it's, it's a quick thought. It's a quick thought. It's a simple riff. It's it, I'm right with you. It's Kurt's tongue in cheek um, rant, quick rant on alpha male period. You know, <laughs> it's... Uh, it's it's a very quick thought. It doesn't take away. It maybe it pumps us back up. If I have to go silver lining playbook, as far as our listening ears going into this next part of the album, um, but yeah, an interlude in in its own. <laughs> yeah, it's right there at two minutes. It's yeah, it is. Yep, <laughs> it exists. Yeah. So there we have it, but. We do have more of a full song for the next track, which is um called Milk It. It was originally called P-I-L, and then it was called Milk Made. Um, this one's definitely one of the more experimental songs on the album, for sure. Uh, I really am not quite getting what this song is about. The lyrics are pretty random, and... um. That's a disappointment to me after some of the previous songs that we heard on the album, which I felt did tell strong stories. This one, just I don't think it's a clear thought, and uh, I'm expecting clear thoughts at this point in the album, so 
For me, this is a disappointment. And it also has some more unpleasant screaming. Um, he's clearly hurting in this one. Uh, I mean, the lyrics do even sadly mention suicide. So there's an unfortunate undercurrent there. But uh, on its own, this is not a favorite. I seem to be in the minority. It seems to be a fan favorite. That's even one of Dave Grohl's favorite Nirvana songs. What? Are you serious? Yes. In oh, the, man. Uh, 33 and a third book. I read on this, it said that in 2005, Dave Grohl said this and Heart-Shaped Box were his two favorite Nirvana songs. Oof. Maybe because he gets to drum his ass off in it. I mean, this is a punk, avant-garde, <laughs> abstract piece. Um, experimental, I love that. It is very experimental art here. Super crazy lyrics, off-the-wall lyrics. Um... I'll tell you straight up, we're maybe we're both in the minority. This was a skip for me back then. Um, it never had anything for me as far as anything that I gravitated to. Uh, I I've listened to it the least out of every track this week, um, as far as over and over and over again. I, there's just not much to this one. That's very surprising to hear. Um, then again. You know, to everyone their own. Damn, Dave. Yeah, I, 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 just for him saying that, I guess I have to go back and listen to it one more time. But uh, no. um, it was never for me, and it still isn't. And uh, you're, you're right. It, it is a bit of a disappointment on this album, especially with the the tracks that, that preceded it. Uh, but see, I don't think that it loses from its spot here. You know, I just don't think it's a very strong song in any right. Other than an avant-garde piece, and I'll give it that. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I just, I hate to say it, I don't think this was the time to be putting an avant-garde piece on your follow-up to Nevermind. I just, do that for a different project, not this, no. Man, I gotta go back and listen to it. Sorry, Dave, let me check <laughs> it out again. <laughs> But uh, we do get a bit more of a traditional sound with the next track, which is Penny Royalty. This is another song that predates Nevermind. Again, I'm just shocked that there's more than one song here that predates this album. That just, again, tells me this band wasn't going to last for the long haul. We were already going back to pre-Nevermind for material. That's all I'm saying, but... It actually was first played at the same show that saw the debut of Smells Like Teen Spirit. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, this song was definitely overshadowed by that, but um, this one actually, it was also remixed by Scott Lit after the first two songs that he remixed, which were Heart Shaped Box and All Apologies. He did this one a bit later because it was to be the third single. But it was canceled after Kirk Cobain's death, um, which understandable, admittedly, kind of. Well, well, we'll get back to that. But in the meantime, I love that Scott Litt remixed all of these songs at the Bad Animals Studio, which was founded by none other than Hart and Nancy Wilson. So love, love them. Had to mention them here because uh, they were the first big Seattle band before all these boys. So got to give them that respect. 
But um, so for those who don't know, uh, Penny Royalty is, in the words of Cobain, an herbal abortive. So, okay, I guess, yeah, that's a, take that for what you will. I really don't want to get further into that. Um, Just kind of depressing. I, I don't know. Okay, but um, he said that it was kind of just about somebody who was so physically ill that they wanted to die, and that was something that Kurt Cobain could relate to throughout his life, being that ill he wanted to die. Um, I am lucky to say that I haven't been that way. If I say I want to die, I don't literally mean it. Like, <laughs> it's not, um, one of those things, but, uh, yeah, it's a very well-liked song. I appreciate it from a storytelling standpoint. It doesn't do it for me like the earlier tracks that we had earlier, though. And uh, I wouldn't have picked this as a single. Just not, just me, I wouldn't have. I would have probably chosen Dumb as a single over this. I love this song. <laughs> All right. I've always loved this one. I don't know why. I, I, it's so somber. It's so well fitting. Um, you know, I read that herbal abortive thing, and it's inside of a quote um, where he had laughed and said, "Penny royalty is about indigestion," and I just took the herbal abortive as like something to make you throw up. Long story. Oh. So I just took it a different way. Um, but yeah, I've always loved this song. Uh, girls' drums are so beautifully almost offbeat in this. I, I, I just it, oh man, it perfectly portrays Kurt and what he was going through. I feel like, and uh, I have to say, my favorite iteration of this ever was when they did Unplugged. Uh, the version of Penny Royalty from Unplugged is Chef's Kiss. It is perfection. But yeah, I've always loved this one. Yep. I, there was bound to be a two sides of the same I coin. Mean, the first one on this album, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised it took till track nine, but uh, Hell yeah. there we go. It took till then. But um, as for this being canceled as a single, actually a big part of it might have been because one of the B-sides for this was a song called I Hate Myself and Want to Die, which was actually the original title for the album, not chosen for obvious reasons. Uh, that probably had a bit more to do with it being canceled as a single, because it was already pressed. It was literally recalled from production, which is insane. Yeah, that's a tough sell. Yeah. I was going to say, Penny Roll T would be a cool, I don't know. Yeah, that's been a cool that's video. Tough. Yeah, it could have been a uh, after death sort of thing, but still, yeah, no, that's tough. That's a that's a tough sell. I don't care who you are. Yeah, but it did get a record store day reissue almost ten years ago, and people ate that up. Of course, yeah, that's cool, man. That's cool. So, <laughs> I'm glad it got something for everyone. Yeah, I will say that. that. But uh, speaking of singles, um, the next song's title literally means. A hit single, Radio Friendly Unit Shifter. Um, this is another one that was first recorded in early 1991. So, <laughs> okay. I, I said what I thought about that. I don't think that's just a great sign for the band, but 
Anyway, the lyrics on the original demo are actually apparently indecipherable because of just how it's done. So the lyrics for this might be completely different than what was presented back then. Uh, this is another one where I love the title, first of all. Love, love, love that. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. But this is another one I'm not quite sure what the story is. It, it, it's a bit more of an um, experimental track to me. Uh, like Milk, like milk it i like it better than milk it but um it's definitely more pleasant to listen to i think than that one um but i it's just yeah it's not my favorite here i don't hate it but i definitely don't love it either just kind of not for me yeah i uh i'm not big on the vocals here i'm not big on the way the vocals are delivered on this one i love the fast stuff with them i really do i mean this song as far as a composition musically it, i mean it takes off and never looks back um i like that i i like the evolution of this composition a lot actually i just don't like the vocals on this song um the writing if, when you read it if that's the words he's singing uh are is way better than what the vocals deliver and i i really feel like it loses um it loses it loses me but i really feel like it loses the song at that point it's it's to the literally to the point of me questioning whether or not the title was tongue-in-cheek you know like super tongue-in-cheek i think it, it was, was so i mean super I, on purpose just it's I mean, it's tough for me well the thing is obviously this was a band that was big on being ironic and yeah. honestly today that kind of is just lame to me um i think we've seen too much of it at this point so They're... sorry guys sorry dave Grohl, if you're listening <laughs> I doubt you are, but I, I can hope you're listening. Dave's listening. <laughs> uh, yeah, I certainly, yeah. But uh, we, we've got another bit of avant-garde on the next track, which is Tourette's, shortest song on the album, even shorter than um, Very Ape. I'm almost forgetting the name of that already. Uh this is the one least favorite on the album. This just does absolutely nothing for me. It doesn't, I don't feel like it's even a pleasant to listen to interlude. Like, Very Ape is there. I don't feel like I have to run for the skip button. This one makes me want to run for the skip button. I just don't care for it. I think it's lame and doesn't have anything to say, really. Um, If it is, I'm not getting the point and just why the hell is it called Tourette's? That's because uh, I know what that is. I do know what it is, but just why? I can only like super reach and say that because I I absolutely loathe the vocals here. Um, I and it's super short. I can only reach and be like, that's exactly what it's trying to do is be like a Tourette's outburst um something you don't want to hear but i think that's me reaching i look to see if there was anybody out there as crazy as i was and unfortunately on this one i didn't find it um the riff behind it is is okay to me i i'm on the the fence about whether i love it or not but now the vocals here just ruin it this is another skip for me back in the day um 
of course, to get to the next track. I yes. mean, that's what a skip is, but to specifically get to the next track we're going to talk about. <laughs> well, yes, fortunately, uh, the album is going to end strongly with all apologies. Uh, again, another cello solo here from their friend Kira Shaley, the only other musician on the album. Um, Kurt dedicated this song to both Courtney and Francis, so... And uh, he said, like, the lyrics didn't describe them, but the feeling did, which makes sense to me. I can respect that. Um, and of course, it was the second single along with Rape Me. Uh, so here's the hot tea take. I do like this song. There's a better version of it, and it's from MTV Unplugged. That version's better. That version actually did kind of serve as the music video for the song because there wasn't one filmed. I think that one just hits differently than this one. I like this spine, but there, I, the MTV Unplugged version just... I, I take it over this one. Hey, that's the way I felt about Penny Roll, so I, I'm with you. There's something about dr a Grohl drumming with a fan brush on on like a jazz set snare, you know, uh, that really adds to a lot of these songs on that Unplugged jam. Um, all apologies on Unplugged is really good. I'm with you. Um, this this is it's a heck of a way to end this album, but it definitely sang through. I think Serve the Servants could have ended this album just the same and maybe even hit harder and had more of a meaning behind it but that's me reaching i definitely think all apologies does a good job closing it down i mean that i'd be just repeating you you know i love the composition i love uh, this is a good one this is a good song um it is definitely one that has come across the test of time um it's still one that you could turn on and immediately is is well known definitely sad to see it be the last recorded song from kurt or the last album track from yeah. from him but kind of a fitting one too admittedly speaking of fitting i thought i read and i was hoping um you would confirm it i don't know if you know but they put out rape. It wasn't rape me and all apologies. The A and B. Yeah, or, they <laughs> were the single is, together. That is amazing. What With a single man! A male seahorse giving birth on the cover. <laughs> I love it. I uh, love it. Yeah, I I do love that. Um, at those that's definitely two sides of the same coin there for sure. Yeah, but. Yeah, I, I, and it's definitely a good closer, I think, after the past couple of songs that I didn't enjoy as much. Yeah, most definitely. And that were much louder. This was a nice, calm way to close the album, which I appreciate. It's definitely a wild mix of songs on this album. I, I would, you know, the pacing isn't off, but there is, there's a schizophrenia about this album, in my opinion. <laughs> you know, yeah. inside this, there are definitely two two sides fighting for vying for for time on this on this album yeah but i do think that's reflective of this band most stuff and um i think that's part of the appeal for it for a lot of people just because like it so reflects that going back and forth uh, it is so different all around uh, but 
I think that's what people really enjoy about it. And they like how raw it is in comparison to the previous albums. So I definitely can see why this speaks to folks as much as it does. Yeah. For sure. But now, final judgment. What is your final grade for this album? Oof, Nirvana in Utero. It is definitely an awesome trek through Nirvana as I've said way too many times, an evolving group of artists, an evolving band. Um, from a heavy opening to an apologetic soft cello closing, uh, it really runs the gamut. Uh, you know, I had already said that it has two different sides, but this punk side and this poppy side fighting and it is like you said characteristic of this band i think it comes across well there are some misfires here not too many not really any ones that take me all the way out of the album but there are some in there that come very close um there is a solid solid middle of this album um which cannot be denied the, like I said before, the pacing is there, but there's a little bit left to be wanted, in my opinion, as far as a whole. Um, I'm going to give Nirvana in Utero a B. Very, very fair grade. I actually, for this, um, this said Nevermind, maybe apples and oranges, but I'm going to give it the same grade I gave Nevermind, B minus. Uh. I mean, in comparison to Nevermind, I think that Nevermind just has higher highs and lower lows than this one. I don't think there's quite a come as you are, smells like teen spirit. Not quite for me here, but there also isn't stay away quite. So, um, and there is an evolution here that I appreciate. And again, that four track run is impeccable but not everything else quite adds up to it for me. And I totally get why this album's beloved. It just isn't my sensibility. It doesn't speak to me in that way. And uh, I can definitely respect it, but I don't see this one. I don't see this just being one I go back to a lot after we're done with it. Frankly, there's others that I'm like, I'm definitely going to want to go back to this. This isn't one of them, I don't think, actually. Heard. But it was a neat trip, that's for sure. But what, for those what? who are just tuning in, um, we did put this album up against another in a little battle, up against Pearl Jam's Versus, which was released the same year. And... Uh, well, we have to decide which we liked better. So I'll let you go first and you tell me what one you liked better. Bum, ba -da -ba -ba -da -bum. I'm going Pearl Jam versus. It fills out more as far as I don't know if I would have said that back in the day. I love Pearl Jam. I I love this album more when I was younger than I do now. Um, but Pearl Jam is still a full, robust album that really doesn't miss uh that much so i'm gonna go versus yeah i'm on the same page i gave it a higher grade than this one it just uh again it spoke more to me i felt like it just sounded better the songs were more full the stories were more thought out i think this band just doesn't have that same storytelling singer songwriter 
in the way that Pearl Jam does. I think they do that better than this band does. And I'm a big fan of the singer-songwriters, so it is natural, I think, that I would gravitate a bit more to Pearl Jam in this case. But um, Versus, it, it was a pretty easy win for me on this one. Because Versus is one I'll definitely be going back to. I actually bought it on vinyl recently. So, nice. Nice. Um, yeah. But we, we had to ask everybody else what they thought, of course. And between uh, the polls, it was pretty close. It was about a 60-40 split that yeah. we had. So uh, not a quite a blowout like last time with Madonna and Janet, but uh, still a somewhat sizable margin. But with that being said, the winner was Versus by Pearl Jam. Wow, okay. Yeah. There you go. Well, speaking of in utero, because we now have a uh, a tradition of forgetting, what was your favorite track on the album? <laughs> oh, Rape Me. There you go. A lot there. of it might probably definitely has to do with succession, but it's still Fair a enough. great song. I have to go all apologies. I love that song. That's Always have. A winner. Wow, what a perfect single for us, I guess. Perfect CD single hey! back then. <laughs> all apologies and rape me. There you go. There you yeah. go. Pe Penny Royalty was right there, but all apologies. Edged yeah. it out. No, it wasn't a contest for me. <laughs> But, oh, I, I was late to the bandwagon of that show, but I loved it so much. So I had to follow oh, my yeah. heart on that one. I like it. But, um, yeah, that does that does it. Our first ever album battles that we've ever done. I enjoyed doing them. I definitely like to do more in the future. Yeah, that's um, super fun. Yeah. But uh, we're not going to be doing them next. Um, in fact... Uh, uh, so this is something you might know more about this if you're on our side of the tracks, but Ocean City, Maryland will be having its first annual Ocean's Calling Music Festival at the end of September, and we will both be attending it. And, down uh, the beach. Down the beach, hon. Yes. <laughs> down the beach. And uh, really big, a uh, big lineup of artists, some pretty big names on there. Lots of 90s bands, especially, but... um. A good amount of 21st century, too, I would say, is in there. Some up-and-comers, for sure. Good variety. And because of that, our next month will be albums that will be represented at Ocean's Calling from the artists playing it. And uh, we'll be doing that day by day. So the first day of the festival, which is on a Friday, um, there are actually two headliners that day. But one of them is none other than Miss Alanis Morissette. And naturally, with that, we will be covering none other than Jagged Little Pill. Yeah, man. Yeah. I'm very excited for this one. Uh, I mean, it, it's Jagged Little Pill. What else? <laughs> if, it's if true. You, I think you know why it's exciting to do that just alone. Just the fact that it's Jagged Little Pill. So, here we have it. It's going to be a fun one. Going to be a fun one. Most definitely. And and so now, we are closing our heart-shaped boxes on grunge and album battles. And we're going to move on with one hand in our pockets and another one making our next podcast. And we hope you're all there for us next time. 
Peace.